Well, if you would, stand with me as we open our Bibles to the Gospel of John. In chapter 18, start reading in verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusations do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for Christ going to die for our sin. And we thank you for confirming it to us by your sure prophetic word. And Lord, I pray that we would affirm that word even now as we look back into scripture and see this is something that you have planned before even the foundation of the world for our good and for your glory to display the full wealth of your grace in such a way that we would be overwhelmed by you. Because, Father, you are overwhelming. You are something far beyond anything we could ever hope to be, though we so often try in our own rebellion. And in those moments, I pray that you would help us to look to Jesus, the author and finish of our faith, not only set an example for us, but provided redemption, the forgiveness of our sins in his death. Father, it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, as we saw last week, Judas arrives in the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives with an entourage of Roman soldiers numbering around a thousand. He's also got the temple police and several members of the Sanhedrin with him. Sanhedrin is the Supreme Court of Israel. Once they arrest Christ, they take him to Annas. Annas is the former high priest who serves as kind of the godfather of the Jewish nation. The Sanhedrin, you'll remember, is made up of 70 Sadducees and Pharisees. The high priest makes 71. He's kind of the, uh, like the, the speaker of the house. The Romans would not allow Annas to serve longer than 10 years. So members of his family, including his son-in-law, Caiaphas, have been serving in this capacity with the Romans' approval and with Annas' direction. John points out that Caiaphas, the current high priest here, he's the one who said back in John 11, it's better for one man to die, speaking of Christ, than the whole nation suffer. Do you remember why he said that? You remember what the occasion was? What did Christ do that would cause Caiaphas to say that? He had just raised Lazarus from the dead. That was the buzz around Jerusalem. Everyone's talking about this miracle worker with divine power. How are the Romans going to respond to this? And Caiaphas says, listen, you fools. This man must die 
before we lose the ability to govern ourselves. Now, the whole problem is on what charges? He's broken no laws. So John eleven fifty three 53 said, from that day forward, they made plans to put Christ to death. They also planned to kill Lazarus, by the way. You can't have a guy die and come back from the grave four days later, walking around town, talking about this one who is both God and man. We can't allow that. And so as they're discussing how they're going to commit these murders, Christ comes over the ridge of the Mount of Olives from Bethany to Jerusalem you got thousands and thousands and thousands of these Galilean Jews lining the streets shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And then he goes to an upper room in the home of a friend of his to observe Passover. That's what Galileans, those Jews from up north, when they come down through Samaria or on the other side of the Jordan and then come into Judea, that's what they do on Thursday night. They observe Passover. You remember what Passover is about? The death angel passing over, right? Remember when, Noah, when Moses said, let my people go, and Pharaoh said no. And so they, they get to the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn. How are you going to escape that? He said, you take the blood of a lamb and you put it above your doorpost and the death angel sees the blood covering that that home and he will pass over and so that's what they've been observing now for 1500 years Christ as the fulfillment of that Old Testament picture uses this occasion to not only observe Passover but to implement the Lord's Supper what you just partook in it represents the new covenant that's established by the shedding of the blood of the Lamb of God who delivers us not from Egypt, not from bondage to men, but from bondage to sin. And then he leaves with his disciples. And he comes to the garden to pray. That's when Judas arrives with a search party. They're carrying lanterns and torches and weapons. And, and they take him first to Annas, breaking one law after another. They are breaking a host of laws. I mean, they're making this arrest at night that was against the law. They present no evidence of his guilt, and yet they declare him guilty. That's against the law. They demand that he testify against himself. They're holding trials under the cover of darkness. These are all against the law. They're trying to create charges that will give Pilate reason to crucify him. They strike him before he's even rendered a verdict of guilty. That's against the law. One commentator said he added it all up to the gospel records. More than 20 laws have been broken by these guys. Annas now sends him over to Caiaphas for a formal hearing. John doesn't go into that because Matthew, Mark, and Luke have already given us the details of how they sought to hire false witnesses and pay them to lie under oath. But they couldn't get them to agree. They, they can't get their lies to match up. And so finally they come across two guys who said, yeah, we were there that day when we heard him say. They're talking about back in John 2. We were there that day when we heard him say, tear down this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. Well, that's a threat to Israel, isn't it? The temple? <laughs> that's, that's what their whole nation is built around. Herod's been working on that now for 40-some years. 
He's going to tear it down? We can't have that. Now, of course, he's talking about his incarnate flesh. Why? Because it's at the temple in the Holy of Holies is where the fullness of God manifests himself through his Shekinah glory. Who is Christ? He is the fullness of God wrapped in human flesh. And so he says, tear down this incarnate flesh. Tear down this temple where atonement for man's sin occurs. Tear down this temple, this incarnate flesh, where men come to worship the Lord, a holy God. Tear down this temple, this incarnate flesh, and I will raise it up. They understand that to obviously be a claim of deity. Just as the fullness of God indwells the temple, the fullness of God indwells the flesh, the incarnate flesh, the temple of Christ. So they ask, are you saying that you are the Christ, the Messiah? Is that what you're saying? Are you saying that you are the one who reconciles man with his creator? Are you him? Christ said, as you have said. That's it. That's it. He spoke in blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? He is deserving of death. They declare him guilty for telling the truth. Now the law says they must wait 24 hours before they try him again. They're not obeying the laws. They put him in Caiaphas's dungeon, which is in the basement of the Sanhedrin. They keep him there until daybreak. It's around 6 a.m. That's when they hold the next trial. A matter of hours, not a day. They ask him again before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. Are you the son of God? You rightly say that I am. What further need do we have? Now as this occurs, John says what Christ told Peter is coming true simultaneously. Peter has at least three times denied that he knows Christ. And as he does that, he hears the rooster crow just as Christ said. So Christ has been through three Jewish trials. One before Annas, two formal trials before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, just hours apart. They have found him guilty for telling the truth that he is the Messiah. They say that's blasphemy. Now the problem is, is they have no ability to publicly crucify him. How are they going to convince Rome to do that? On what charges? Verse 28, we pick up with our text. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. Keep in mind, Christ is arraigned in one day in one city before two courts before Jewish courts and Gentile courts he is charged with blasphemy for telling the truth and he's charged for treason from baseless accusations he experiences six separate trials as he is judged under the law of God represented by Caiaphas and under the law of man represented by Pilate never before nor since in all of human history has this ever occurred ever after formal sentencing before the Sanhedrin, as recorded by Matthew in chapter 27, John says they take him to the Praetorian, 
That's the governor's headquarters. Now, Pilate's primary headquarters is in Caesarea. That would be uh, kind of uh, northwest of Jerusalem. If you know where Tel Aviv is today, it would be just north of Tel Aviv. It's over on the coast. That's his primary headquarters. But he always comes to Jerusalem during Passover. And wherever Pilate is, that's the governor's headquarters. No matter where he's at, it's kind of like Air Force One. Wherever he is, wherever he sets up a makeshift, makeshift office, that's the praetorian. comes from the Latin word for leader. He comes to Jerusalem every year to supervise Passover. Why? According to Josephus, more than 2 million Jews come every year from several countries to observe Passover. So you've got to have armed forces there on alert for any trouble. And trust me, Christ has already caused them a lot of trouble. A lot of trouble. The raising of Lazarus from the dead has created quite a stir. Arriving in Jerusalem to the shouts of thousands. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The king of Israel. That has caused quite a stir. Then he goes in and cleanses the temple. That causes some problems. He calls Annas. Uh, this is a, his den of thieves. He and his family. Wow. Wow. And he was over there every day with all those teachings through those I am statements. And that got the attention of the Romans and the Jewish authorities. Everyone's on high alert. So it's early in the morning because Roman courts start at sunrise. And this is a matter of utmost importance. This is going to be the first case on the docket. There's nothing else that's going to happen that's going to be more important than this. And so they bring him before Pontius Pilate who, by the way, serves under Emperor Tiberius as the governor over Judea. Let me give you just a little bit of background on Pilate. You'll remember that, that Rome was a republic, like we are a republic. And what a republic means is, is you are ruled by elected officials. However, Julius Caesar, by means of a civil war, takes control of that republic. Now that leads to his death as members of the Senate will assassinate him in 44 B.C. That's the Ides of March, right? That led to his nephew. There were, there's going to be a scramble for, for power now and there's going to be some fighting going on. And the guy that comes out on top is a guy named Octavius. It's his nephew. And so Octavius is going to be declared because of Julius Caesar. He's going to be declared the Caesar. Later, they're going to add the title Augustus because Augustus means venerated, reverenced. You remember Caesar Augustus, don't you? He's the one who said all the world should be taxed, which is what caused Joseph and Mary to go to Bethlehem. With the new Roman Senate, they need to strengthen the power and authority of the Caesar. And so they declare, they pass a bill that says that Julius Caesar was actually a Roman god. Why? Because all the Caesars who follow him now will be sons of a Roman god. They'll be sons of Julius. That's where you're going to get the phrase, Caesar is Lord. That's what's going to cause many of the first Christians issues. Because they will not, they cannot Bow a knee and acknowledge Caesar to be Lord. Caesar is not a deity. 
And so Julius Caesar is followed by his nephew Octavius, Caesar Augustus. Who follows Caesar Augustus? Tiberius, his stepson. Tiberius is the one who is the reigning emperor. He's the one that has appointed Pontius Pilate as governor over Judea. Judea means land of the Jews. Now, what is Pilate's job and how did he get it? Well, Pilate's job as governor is basically to be an administrator. I mean, his, his primary position, which he's going to hold this, this position for about 10 years, and his primary job is collect taxes, to, to mint coins, to distribute funds, and what is the main thing he's to do? Keep the peace. He's not a particularly likable guy, though. His administration is marked by briberies and by insults. He's, he's known for his disdain of the Jews. He's known for having executed some of the Jews without even granting them a fair trial. So this should not be too much of a problem for the Jews to get him to crucify Christ, should it? He's a very insecure fellow. I mean, Pilate realizes that he holds this position because of his wife, Claudia Procula. Claudia Procula is the youngest daughter of Julia. Well, who's Julia? She is the daughter of Tiberius, the emperor. He's married to Tiberius' granddaughter. And though his primary responsibility is to keep the peace, many of the problems that he has with the Jews are of his own making. I mean, when he first takes office, his soldiers ride into Jerusalem with banners emblazoned with pagan images of Tiberius on them. He knows that's going to be offensive to the Jews. And so when the Jews protest, he threatens to kill them. And to his surprise, they bow up. They're like Ukrainians. They will not lie down and take this. And so Pilate calls for his soldiers to leave Jerusalem, go back to Caesarea never expecting the Jews to follow them. The Jews make a trip to Caesarea and for five days they hound Pilate about what he has done. He says, fine, fine, I'll address you. Let's all meet over in the amphitheater and I'll talk about your concerns. He gets them all gathered together in the amphitheater and he threatens to slaughter them. And again, he's shocked. They are not afraid. They are not afraid. And they won't back down. And it's very embarrassing. Extremely embarrassing for Pilate that he buckles under. And it leaves a bad taste in his mouth. On another occasion when the Jews demanded, demanded that he build an aqueduct, Pilate said, that's fine, I will. And how does he pay for it? He raids the temple treasury. Raids the temple treasury to do it. And they protest. And this time he's not going to take it. He orders his soldiers to dress in plain clothes and to mingle among the crowd. And he arms them with daggers and clubs. And at the given signal, he has them beat the Jews to death. Slaughters them. This gets back to the emperor. He's not pleased. Though Pilate is connected through marriage, he's doing a really bad job. His wife's grandfather is upset. Not long after that, he comes to Jerusalem wanting to butter up the grandfather of his wife. So he orders that shields be made honoring Tiberius as a Roman deity. He wants to show 
his grandfather-in-law. The problem's not with him, it's with these Jews. Look how I'm trying to honor you. They are the ones who are protesting this. Then he attacks a group of Galileans, Jews from up north that have come to Jerusalem for Passover. And he slaughters them. As they are offering sacrifice, as they are giving their Passover sacrifice, he slices them up and their blood mingles with the blood of their sacrifices. And he sends them a message. You will acknowledge my authority. You will yield to my agenda. You will do what I say do or I will kill all of you. There's a lot of bad blood between the Jews and Pilate. That's why when you get over to chapter 19, when Pilate doesn't want to cooperate with these people that he hates, he tries to release Christ and they'll say, if you release him, you are no friend of Caesar. You're no friend of Tiberius. Anyone declaring themselves to be a king is in rebellion to him. You cooperate with us. Or this is going to be the last straw, Pilate. The last straw. You will lose your job. We will make such a ruckus that he will have no choice but to replace you. They're hoping to put enough political pressure on Pilate that when it comes time to decide between his career and the crucifixion of Christ, he'll make the decision that is most expedient to his own benefit. What do you think he'll do? Have you seen the movie? They go from the Sanhedrin to the Praetorium. It's about a two-minute walk. Pilate knows Christ is coming. His wife has had nightmares over this. He knows what they're up to. His wife has been begging him. Begging him. Have nothing to do with this. So here they come. Early in the morning. First case on the docket. John lets us know they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. Why do you think John tells us that? Why is that here? He's talking about these rule keepers who have done nothing but break one law after another. They've made an arrest at night. That's against the law. You can't have trials under the cover of darkness. That's what they've been doing. You can't pay witnesses to bear false witness. That's what they've been doing. You can't request that somebody incriminate themselves. That's what they've been doing. In other words, they have no problem with lying. They have no problem with bribing. They have no problem with murdering someone who's broken no laws. But they do have a problem. They do have a problem with setting foot in a Gentile palace. Why? Well, as Judeans, they'll be observing Passover later. Why is that a problem? Well, they believe to enter a Gentile's house where there's leavened bread will defile them. Why do they believe that? Well, when Israel left Egypt, they left quickly. There was no time for the bread to rise. And so when they observed Passover, it was always done with unleavened bread. Leaven came to be associated with sin. And so if they go into a house of a Gentile where there's leavened bread, it will defile them. They won't be able to observe Passover. 
Now, if you want to make a note in the margins of your Bible, here's a good place to do it. There was no such Old Testament law. There was no Old Testament regulation. <laughs> this tradition, the rabbis invented to increase separation between them and those dreaded Gentiles. We have no problem decimating justice to accomplish our purposes. But we do uphold our religious traditions. Let me ask you again. Why do you think John told us this? Beware. Beware of hypocrisy. That blinds you to the truth about yourself. That would have you to believe you're okay with God. Because after all, you're religious, right? What you do or don't do, somehow or another, makes you better than those who don't do what you do? Really? Have you ever known anyone who really, they had no problem. I mean, you, you, you were kind of amazed when you... Uh, see how they run their business. They have no problem with being a little deceptive because it adds to the bottom line. Or they have, have no problem being a little deceptive when it comes to their taxes. They have no problem talking about people in the church gossiping. They have no problem with the, the mean-spirited attitude that they have. But, man, they would never think of going to church without wearing a dress. Why, they'd never think of going to church and using any translation other than the KJV or the NAS or the NIV or whatever. They'd never think of going to a ball game on Wednesday night. I mean, instead of Bible study, prayer meeting. You ever known anyone who holds themselves up because of what they do and others don't do? Hiring false witnesses. Trumping up charges against an innocent man. Putting someone to death that doesn't deserve to die. Ah, that's no problem. But we would never think of setting foot inside a Gentile palace. No, 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 no. There's leavened bread in there. Some of you older folks may remember the movie that came out back in the early 70s. Michael Corleone, standing in church, renounces Satan as he becomes the godfather to his niece, who's being baptized in his church, while at the same time his orders to assassinate his rivals is occurring simultaneously. I bring this up this morning not because I'm trying to single out anybody in particular. I think the point of the text is we can all be guilty of this, can't we? Is this not a warning against a holier-than-thou attitude that can blind us to our own need for a daily examination of the heart that leads us to genuine humility before the cross? Their hypocrisy, their hypocrisy is a blatant abomination before the Lord. They won't come in because of that leavened bread. And so Pilate comes out and he says, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. We don't want a trial, we want an execution. 
They know their charge of blasphemy is not going to hold up in a Roman court. So they didn't even bother to bring it up. And so when Pilate asked, what are the allocations? They go, well, that's kind of a problem. He hasn't committed a crime. So to avoid the issue, we're going to take offense. We're going to take offense to the fact that you have challenged our integrity. We would not have brought him here if he hadn't done something evil. Now, Pilate knows this is nonsense. He knows it's nonsense. So he says, take him yourself and judge him by your own law. The Jews said, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And Pilate said, this is obviously a religious matter, and I'm not an authority on religious law, Jewish law. You deal with him. He's obviously offended you. You take him and do with him as you see fit. And they said, we can't. We can't. Rome put our right to carry out capital punishment under the direction of you, the governor. You. That's why we're here. Now, they obviously tried to stone a lady caught in the act of adultery in John 8. They tried to kill Christ on three previous occasions in chapter 8, 10, and 11. They will later stone Stephen in Acts 7. So why don't they? Why don't they, with Pilate's permission, this is the governor who has the authority to execute with his permission, why don't they take Christ into the public square and stone him? Is it because of Christ's popularity that they're afraid that all those Galileans that are in Jerusalem will, 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 will protest and will have a big uproar? I mean, there's, there's over two million of them. <laughs> And will that draw the attention of Rome to where they will step in and take their power away from them? Is that the reason? You know, if they had done what Pilate said to do, Christ would have been wrong about what he said, about how he would die. The Bible would have been wrong. So this is really difficult to explain outside the veracity of Scripture. John makes the point to tell us the reason they don't do what Pilate tells them to do is because Christ is the Messiah. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. I mean, the Jews are given permission to try him, convict him, and deal with him as they see fit. They've already tried to stone him. They've already tried to throw him over a cliff. But now they have the approval of Pilate to do it. They don't do it. Why? Why is that? If you go back in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 21, where the Lord is speaking to his people through Moses before they enter into the promised land. And he knows that there are Canaanites and all kinds of... of, uh, Uh, really wicked people in that land. And he says, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he's to be put to death, and you hang him on a tree, that's the way you're going to let everybody know that he is guilty. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is what? Cursed by God. In other words, to maintain civility among fallen men, the Lord grants permission for the use of the death penalty. Why? 
to deter detestable behavior. The Lord is the one who gives life. You take that person's life that the Lord gave him and you shall die. That goes all the way back to Genesis 9. He who sheds blood by man, his blood shall be shed. Right? And so he, he lays it out for them. Bestiality, Exodus 22. Adultery, homosexuality, Leviticus 20. Prostitution and rape, Deuteronomy 22. In other words, gross perversion of what the Lord by his authority gives to us as blessings, though the wages of all sin is death, to preserve a sense of civility, to preserve a sense of morality, even among fallen men. You are to put on public display for all to see the seriousness of allowing, even encouraging, moral abuse of that which the Lord created to be sacred. To commit a crime punishable by death as a deterrent to others going down that detestable path. He is to hang on a tree for all to see that his gross rebellion demands punishment. Capital punishment served a positive purpose within society. Now what's that have to do with Christ? Well, Christ said in John 3, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You say, well, what does that have to do with it? Well, Christ is referring now to Numbers 21. You remember when the Israelites are being taken by the Lord, led by Moses from Egypt, their land of bondage, to the promised land. They're going through this wilderness, and the people begin to grumble against the Lord about their circumstances. Be, be careful not to do that, by the way. They're grumbling. Oh, yeah, we were in bondage back there in Egypt, and we weren't treated very well, but, man, we had those onions, and we had those leeks, and, man, we had some really good food back in that time. Now we've got manna. Manna this, manna that, manna this, manna that. It's, just, it's, it's awful. Serpents come down upon them in judgment. They begin to die. What do you do when you start realizing your mortality? What do you do when you know that you're going to die? You cry for mercy. And the Lord tells Moses, you take bronze. That was a symbol of judgment throughout Scripture. You make it into the image of a serpent, the likeness of evil. You raise it up on a standard on a pole with a crossbar. You lift it up where all can see the consequences of man's rebellion. And whoever looks to that cross, hanging on a tree, the one made into the likeness of sin, look at what your sin demands. He who looks to that in faith in the Lord will be healed. Christ said, I am the Son of Man who comes in the incarnate flesh, lifted up on a cross to be put on a tree. 
One without sin will be made sin to demonstrate the righteousness of God. In other words, the Lord who is holy cannot forgive us unless he deals with our sin. How is he going to do that? Lift him up on that crossbar. And all who look at that cross, the Lord by faith will heal them. They tried to stone him. They tried to throw him off a cliff. They've tried to get rid of him several times and been unsuccessful. Why? His time had not yet come. And this is not the means by which he will die as an atonement for our sin. And it never entered into the mind of Caiaphas. Never. That he was doing exactly what Christ said that he would do. Never did he, never did he realize that. He's fulfilling scripture. But John, John, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, he sees it and he wants us to see it. He wants us to see Christ is not just being accused by men. He's going to be judged by God. He who is without sin is going to be made sin. He's going to be cursed by the justice God's holy character demands for our sin. So all who look to him by faith, that's how you are healed and reconciled. And made whole. And justified. Exactly what Christ told his disciples on several occasions. Back in Mark 10. He said we're going to go to Jerusalem. And the son of man. That's the, the title he liked to use for himself. He used it over 80 times. Talking about God. And the fullness of God wrapped in human flesh. The son of man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes. And he will be condemned to death. And they will deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will arise. How accurate was that? Right down to the last detail. Absolutely, exactly what he said is what occurred. So as we look at this text, what are some lessons we can take away from this? There are many lessons here, but let's just... Take three. Number one, beware of hypocrisy. D don't think you're okay because of how religious you are. Humble yourself at the cross every morning. Realizing when you look out there in that culture and you see how gross, how gross that sin is. Realize there go I but for the grace of God. There go I, but for the grace of God. We can hate that, that immorality. But those who are committing it are the ones who need the gospel the same as I needed the gospel. Number two, there's no neutral ground. Pilate tries to avoid personal responsibility. You take him, you do with him as you see fit. But he couldn't escape it. Why? It had already been foreordained that Christ would be crucified. Are you the one who is going to crucify him, Pilate? Or will you, like other Gentiles who will make up the Roman church later, will you do the right thing and leave it to somebody else to do what is wrong? What will you do, Pilate? What will you do? You know, you either do what is right or you do what is wrong. There's no neutral ground. Number three, are you prepared for life's decisions? Are you ready for tomorrow? One of our outstanding public school teachers received an email this week asking 
if they would support, along with the rest of their colleagues, a request for $10,000 to be given to an organization that will recruit and indoctrinate young people in our schools to a sexual orientation that is not at all moral. What would you do? How would you handle that peer pressure? Are these people you have to work with? These are people you have to work under. How would you handle that? Are you prepared for it? How would you honor the Lord with your response to a request like that? Are you prepared? You know, if you have any questions about what it means to, to, to be truly born again in Christ, you have any questions about hypocrisy? You have any questions about, you know, what, what does it mean to be justified by, by, the, by the death, the propitiating death of Christ that makes atonement for us? you have any questions about any of that, we're, we're glad to help. You can go to the Connect table. There'll be somebody back there to answer your questions. Or if you just have a simple question about, you know, hey, how can I get involved and serve him? <laughs> I want to do what is right because to not do what is right is to do what is wrong. And so I just, I just want to know what do I need to do? How, how do I get involved? You can go to them. They'll be glad to help you. Stand with me as we pray together. Lord, we thank you for sending Christ to satisfy the justice that your holy character demands for my sin. That your amazing grace might be granted to somebody like me. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. And may we leave this place having worshipped you as our Savior and as our Lord. May we leave this place to share the good news with those that need the gospel just like we need the gospel. Father, thank you. Thank you for what Christ was willing to do that we might be reconciled with you. Thank you, Lord. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.